Welcome, friends, to episode three of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this is the podcast following every single movie of Jack Nicholson's career. We are obviously still in the early years when Jack was still new to the business, still meeting people for the first time, finding his feet. By 1961, he had only come to Hollywood about seven years prior, working in the MGM animation department under the direction of William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, taking acting classes, not to mention enlisting in the California Air National Guard. But it's safe to say that Jack found his first real connection to the movie industry with producer and director Roger Corman. In a span of two years, Jack had already worked with Corman on two projects, those being his first role, Cry Baby Killer, in 1958, and Little Shop of Horrors in 1960. This was Jack's break into the B-movie world. So in the summer of 1961, filming began on the movie we will be talking about today, The Broken Land. I had never seen this one before prior to this week. The Broken Land is a Western, and I have to admit, I wasn't particularly looking forward to watching this one or doing this review. I have a hard time getting into Westerns. Sure, there are a few exceptions if the plot is engaging, but talking about your old school, early 1960s Western genre, I have always struggled to maintain my attention from start to finish. Maybe it's because I don't relate to them. I was, to be fair, born in the 1980s, and I'm from Connecticut. And when I hear some of the lingo used in Westerns, like howdy and be in your bonnet. I'm like, what? So I put this one off for a while. I was not enthused going into it. However, I was able to get through The Broken Land. It's not a perfect film, but it has its strong moments. And I think that's to the credit of a few factors. The movie was filmed at Apache Junction in Arizona in the summer of 1961, and the release date was April 2nd, 1962. The production company who financed the film was Associated Producers Incorporated, and it was distributed by 20th Century Fox, directed by John A. Bushelman, written by Edward A. Laxo, produced by Leonard A. Schwartz, and although it's uncredited, according to IMDb, the movie was also produced by Roger Corman, starring Robert Hinkle as Dave Dunson, Diana Darren as Mavra, Gary Sneed as Billy, Kent Taylor as Marshall Jim Cogan, and our man Jack Nicholson plays Will Broikus. The opening credits are over a painting of a classic Old West scene. A desert with a mountain cliff in the distance and a setting sun. After the credits, we see Dave Dunson on his horse riding through the terrain toward the town. Text appears over the screen which reads, By the late 1870s, the old frontiers were nearly gone. Ribbons of steel replaced the western trails. Law came to the cow towns. But there were those who didn't belong in this new country. 
branded by the war, the land, the violence, they wandered alone, drifting into oblivion. But occasionally they would meet, and then they would band together, united for an hour in their bitter retreat. This is the story of four such people. This is the story of the insurgents. In the opening scene, Mavra, an attractive blonde woman, comes by a general store and sees Billy. Billy is a young man. He seems shy. He's very polite. He works for the store. We initially see him putting out a display, which includes a necklace. He mentions to Mavra that the necklace would look really nice on her. And her response is that she would settle for a stage ticket out of that town. Billy asks her why she has to go so soon, and we find out that she's only been in town for three days. Now, another issue that I have with Westerns is when they don't look authentic enough. So far, I started to feel like some of the characters' looks were a little too modern for the times. Billy was very clean-shaven, and he had short hair, which was spiky on top, and he had sideburns. It looked to me like the sideburns were intentional for the movie, because when I paused it, they actually looked fake, like they had been attached. But the hair, it was too long on top to be considered a crew cut, but it was still very evenly cut. It was the look of a young man in the late 50s, early 60s, is what I'm saying. But on to the story. Mavera goes on to explain that she's taken a job at the Frenchman's, which is a restaurant just across the street, because she figures about a week's pay there will pay for her ticket out of that town. So she heads over there for her first day of work. And now to be clear, the name of the restaurant is Doucette's. The Frenchman's, it appears, is the colloquial term used for it, as the owner is French. Billy watches her as she goes, and Billy, being a clumsy type, knocks over a display of some large tin jugs. And right at that moment, Dave comes riding in past the corner, and the jugs, tumbling over, spooks his horse. The horse is bucking, but Dave manages to get it under control. But when he does, he immediately hops off the horse, grabs Billy. He's about ready to sock him out. Billy apologizes profusely, saying he didn't tell them to fall down. And then the owner of the store comes out and says, Billy is simple, but they put up with him. Dave agrees. He says, yeah, yeah, I understand. So he asks if there's anywhere to eat in this dust hole, as he calls it. So Billy immediately points him in the direction of the Frenchman's, saying how Mavra just started working there. So over at the restaurant, the owner, Doucette, is tying Mavra's apron for her, and he says, Now, mademoiselle, you are a waitress. And her reply is, Just like that. If only you really could change yourself that easily. Dave comes into the place, takes a seat at a table, Mavra's first customer. After she pours him a glass of water, she reaches for his hat, which he set down on the table, to hang it up, and she knocks over the glass. She, of course, apologizes, but Dave, understandably agitated, says, you know, I haven't been in this town for five minutes, and I've nearly been knocked off my horse, and now you're trying to drown me. But Mavera is indignant. She doesn't cower to Dave. She looks him dead in the eye, says if he touches her, she'll break that water pitcher right over his head. 
So Doucette comes out from the back, sees what's going on, and he defuses the situation. Mavra goes to the back, while Doucette explains to Dave she's just nervous, he's her first customer. Right about this time, a young woman enters, followed by an older man, and they're followed by Jim Cogan, the marshal in that small town. As Cogan enters, he overhears Dave and Doucette's heated back and forth and immediately steps in. He looks down at Dave while he sits at his table, gives him this look of, you're about to cause trouble in my town? <laughs> I don't think so. He tells Dave he'd better get out. Dave says, no, there's no trouble here. I don't need to leave. But Cogan, not one to be trifled with, grips Dave's shoulder and tells him again, get out. This doesn't sit well with Dave. He says, you better take your hand off me. So again, Doucette has to defuse the situation. Says there was no argument. The waitress just spilled the water. So Cogan takes his hand off Dave, looks over at Mavra, who's standing near the back. She stares back at him with clear distaste. Cogan is still looking back at her with a similar look on his face. Rather than pursue Dave any further, Cogan sits down at his table. So Doucette tells Mavra to go wait on Cogan's table. Ruth, the young lady at Cogan's table, asks him, what did the young Broikus boy do? This is referring to Jack's character. He said that his father was a criminal. So after Will came through town, Cogan found out who he was and brought him back, threw him into jail. Then the deputy enters. He greets the older man and Ruth as dad and sis. And he mentions he has to get over to the telegraph office to run a check on the Broikus kid, as they're holding him without charge. Before he goes, he asks Mavra to run the prisoner's breakfast over to him, if Doucette has it ready. She says she'd be glad to. Ruth asks Kogan, do you really think you should be holding that young man just because his father was a criminal? Kogan's response is evil begets evil. And if you cross that line, you have to pay the penalty. She asks if he has any proof that he had crossed that line. He says that he's heard stories, and what he's heard is proof enough. Kogan is a man who doesn't just see himself as someone who upholds the law. To him, he is the law. He even says, it's the only way I can be sure of myself. I have to know I'm right. This is why no one in the town challenges Kogan. It's clear that to him, it's his way or no way. So Mavra brings Will's breakfast over to him as he sits in his cell. She asks him if he spends much time in jails. And he says, you should ask if I spend much time out of jails. This is the first movie where we can hear Jack speak with a Southern accent. I think it's a well-done accent. And you remember how in episode one, I talked about how when Jack enlisted in the California Air National Guard, that he went through training at Lackland Air Force Base. Well, I'm wondering if it was being down in Texas for that time that helped him gain an ear for that accent. What are you in for this time? Same as all other times. I got the wrong last name. See, my daddy was a real bad man. And too many young bloods borrow his name when they're out raising cane. Kogan, I mean the marshal. How long will he hold you? It's hard to tell. 
He's got a real bad case like none I've ever seen. A case of what? I call it blood hunger. It eats away at a man's guts and it don't matter what side of the law he's on. Will thinks that Mavra doesn't understand his explanation, but she assures him that she does, more than he might think. Meanwhile, Ruth and her father come out of the restaurant while Kogan stays inside. Here is where we find out that she and Kogan are engaged, but she expresses doubt. She's afraid of his ways. Inside the restaurant, Kogan tells Doucette to fire Mavra, and he even pays for her ticket out of town. Doucette doesn't understand why, but Kogan says this is his town, and he wants to keep it clean. Dave sits at his table, having his meal, paying no mind to them. Doucette tries to reason with Kogan, but Kogan grips his shoulder, the same way he did earlier with Dave, and Dave notices this. So now he's watching their interaction. Doucette gives in. He says, okay, if you think it's best. So Kogan exits and he passes Mavra as she's coming out of the sheriff's office. If there was any doubt up until this point that they have some kind of a history, it's absolutely clear now. We don't know what that is, but he asks her when she got into town, and she tells him three days ago. She said it made her sick when she found out that he was the marshal of that town. All she wanted to do was run. He tells her she better start running now. At that point, Billy calls Mavra over to the general store. He noticeably has something hidden in the pocket of his apron. She comes over to him. He's excited, albeit still very bashful. He says he has something for her. So he takes it out of his pocket and he hands it to her. She unwraps this little package, and it's the necklace that he was putting on display earlier. But the owner of the store, who doesn't know that Billy took the necklace is about to show it to a woman browsing at the store when he sees that it's gone. Then he sees Billy giving it to Mavra. He runs over and says he took it out of the case like a thief. But Billy explains he was going to pay for it by working in the store. Billy grabs the necklace saying he'll put it back, but it breaks in his hand and scatters onto the ground. He tries to pick it up and he says he'll string it back together. But then Kogan has to come intervene again. He asks Billy if Mavra told him to steal that necklace. He says no. Dave, who has come out of the restaurant, sees all of this go down, so he comes over and he pays for the necklace himself, $5. Dave is trying to defuse the situation, not unlike Doucette back over at the restaurant. The owner of the store even admits that Billy had talked to him about wanting to buy the necklace, but he rarely pays attention to him. Kogan isn't interested in any of this, and he arrests Billy anyway. And so Billy, scared, tries to run. Kogan pulls out his gun, but Dave knocks it out of his hand and knocks Kogan to the ground, and a fight ensues. Billy doesn't get far because he's caught by the deputy. At this point, the townspeople start to gather, looking on as all of this is happening. The fight like I've noticed with a lot of B-movie fights, is not extremely well choreographed. They go from throwing punches to kind of wrestling on the ground. But it doesn't last for long because the deputy apprehends Billy and he fires a shot onto the ground to break up the fight between Kogan and Dave. 
Kogan gets one last good shot at Dave. One more punch straight to the face. So the deputy brings Dave and Billy into the jail. Billy is thrown into the cell with Will. Dave is put into a cell by himself. Before the door is shut, he tries to fight the deputy. But right on cue, Kogan enters the office and punches Dave out. So Dave falls onto the bed in a daze as his cell door is locked. The deputy, while he does follow all of Kogan's orders, makes it clear that he doesn't agree with his way of doing things. But Kogan brushes him off because, again, he is the law as far as he's concerned. So the deputy leaves for the telegraph office. As the three prisoners are left alone in their cells, it's evident to Will that Billy is scared and he's not used to being in jail or being on the wrong side of the law, for that matter. So he says to him that if Kogan comes in here and he tries to hurt Billy, he'll do his best to kill him. Kogan goes over to the general store to get the shop owner to sign the complaint against Billy. But the owner doesn't want to press any charges. He explains to Kogan, Billy doesn't have any parents. He's simple. And everyone in the town just kind of takes care of him. This means nothing to Kogan. He just says, sign it. So the shop owner gives in, as everyone does. The stagecoach arrives. Mavra is ready to go. She gets in. As the horses are getting watered, Ruth and the deputy's father who we find out is a bank manager, hands a satchel to the driver of the stagecoach. It's filled with money, and it has to be delivered to the branch manager in Casper. Then he instructs him, after the money is delivered, to go to the hotel and pick up the judge, as per Kogan's orders. The driver mentions that this all seems very sudden. It really doesn't seem fair that Billy should be locked up. Mavra listens in on this conversation. She says she'll be right back. So she goes over to the jail. Over inside the jail, Dave is beginning to come to. Billy thanks him for what he tried to do, as Will looks on. Mavera comes in. She says she's there to say goodbye and that she didn't have much choice about leaving town. Billy asks her where she's going to go, and Dave chimes in. She's going to find someone who can steal her a necklace without getting caught. Mavra has no time to hear this from Dave regardless of whether he thinks him being in jail is her fault. So at this point, Will interjects and he points out that he doesn't think Mavra is there just to say goodbye. And she admits, maybe she came over with the intention of helping them break out of there. She's there because she feels responsible for Billy and for Dave being in jail. So she says to Will, why should I help you break out of jail if you're going to be released anyway? He says, yeah, I'll be released, like I always am. But then he'll have to disappear and move on to the next town, like he always does, until the same thing happens again. Every town is the same, really. And I think the point that this story is trying to make is that each town had someone behind the badge who was too quick to judge and felt like they were the law. So the cycle just keeps Going on and on, whatever town regular folks like these four decide to pass through. Mavra gets the keys out of the desk, hands them over to Will. She heads back outside and back onto the stagecoach. So Will unlocks the cell door, lets himself and Billy out, and then works on Dave's cell. All the while, Billy looks out the window 
and sees the deputy headed over towards the jail. So Dave and Will hide behind the front door. When the deputy walks in, he sees Billy outside of his cell. So Dave sneaks up behind the deputy and punches him out. So while he's knocked out cold, Dave and Will put him inside one of the cells. Billy takes off his apron and puts on the deputy's gun belt. Fumbles with it, I should say. But he says, I guess if I'm going to be a wanted man, I might as well wear this. Dave asks Will where is his. And Will says, oh, I left it home about nine years ago. So Dave grabs a rifle hanging from a gun rack on the wall, hands it to Will and says, here's a rifle. It shoots bullets. Dave's horse is all the way across the street by Doucette's restaurant, but luckily there are horses out in front of the jail. Dave and Billy sneak out the back, and Will goes up front to bring the horses around, figuring if anyone sees him, they'll just assume that he's been let out. So he brings four horses around to the back. When Dave asks him what the extra one is for, he tells them that it's for Mavra, since she'll probably be picked up now for helping them escape. So the three of them each hop on a horse and take off in the direction of the stagecoach, with the fourth horse along with them. Now we have shots of the stagecoach making its way through the trail, and our three guys on horses following in their direction. These shots are all very scenic. As I said, this was filmed out in Apache Junction in Arizona, and I thought the cinematography was good. And that's not always the case in low-budget westerns. We go back and forth with the shots of the stagecoach and then the three guys chasing them down. It really is a well-done sequence. So, as you might expect, the stagecoach has a driver and one guy next to the driver with a shotgun. So as they catch up, Billy gets up in front of Dave and Will and he says he can stop them. So, maybe foolishly, he reaches over to grab the reins of the stage horses and the man with the shotgun shoots at him and he grazes Billy's shoulder. But then Will points the rifle at them and that does stop them. Dave helps Mavra down out of the stagecoach and she knows what this is about. Even if Kogan doesn't know yet that she let them out, he will soon. The driver, assuming this ordeal was meant to be a robbery, tosses the satchel of money onto the ground that was given to him by the bank manager. Then the stagecoach drives on, but then turns around, heading back towards town. So Billy is wounded, although not critically. Will, Mavra, and Dave tend to him, and then Dave picks up the money. He says he's going to see what he can do with it, to which Will asks him if he means take it back. And Dave says yes. And I thought Will had a great response to that. Well, I can just see that. You just go riding back into town, stop somebody on the street. Pardon me, sir. I wonder if you'd mind taking this money off my hands. You see, I just broke jail this morning, right after I tried to kill the marshal. Then this fool stage driver come riding up and throwed it right in my lap. And then he hightailed it back for town. Now, since my specialty is murder and breaking jail, I really don't have any use for it. You understand, sir? I really feel like Will, Jack's character, is a good sounding board to Dave. They play off each other very well. Like there's not just one guy leading the pack. It's an ensemble. They're all in it together. Because, well, after that, Dave sees the error in his thinking, but the four of them need to get moving. And it's not clear where they're headed. 
I think it's just as far away as they can get from Colgan and that town. But they have to get somewhere because Billy is hurt and his wound needs to be bandaged. So they each get back onto their horses. Mavra gets onto the extra horse and they ride. They're making their way through the terrain. But you can tell Billy is in pain. He's sort of crumpled over a bit as he rides. And Dave decides they need to find water. But that's not the only thing they have to worry about, because not too far away, Kogan, along with his deputy and two other men, are following their trail. Kogan stops and finds a drop of blood on a rock. And when he realizes that it's blood, he knows he's on the right track. Not that he had any concept of self-doubt anyway. So back to our four heroes. Thankfully, they come upon a stream. Will helps Billy down off his horse, has him sit down on the ground. He asks him how he's feeling. And there was something kind of touching about what Billy had to say. He said he's not so much feeling, but thinking. He said he's glad this happened, because now folks will be looking for him. Now he has a face. Will says, you didn't have a face before? He says, yeah, I had a nose and a mouth and a couple of eyes, but no one had ever really seen his face before. No one noticed him before. And he says, except for Mavra. Mavra goes over to the stream to get water to clean Billy's wound. While she's gone, Will gets Billy to admit that he likes her. Dave and Mavra are over at the stream. Mavra is wringing out a piece of fabric to use on Billy. And then Dave spots Kogan and his posse over on a hill. Now, there was something about the shot of the posse coming down the hill that irked me, but not in a bad way. They can be seen off in the distance, right on top of the hill, with only sky behind them. And all you can really make out is them in silhouette. The four men bunched together on their horses, coming down the side of the hill, to me, sort of looked like a beetle or a roach crawling down a rock or something. Like I say, though, that might not be a bad thing. I don't know. Maybe that was the intent, to get a creepy, crawly sort of a feeling when you see them at the same time that Dave does. Will sees them off in the distance, too, and he wants to fight them. He's still got that rifle that shoots bullets, but Dave doesn't want to do that. He wants to just give them the bag of money and send them on their way. He doesn't need the trouble. But Will says to him, there's good and evil in this world, and they don't go around wearing signs on their backs. Kogan is the one who forced them into this, so they've got every right to kill him. But Dave says nobody forces him to do what he doesn't want to do. So Mavra attends to Billy. Dave and Will get ready to meet Kogan's posse. Dave draws his gun, has Will go stand about 20 or so feet off as a backup. When the posse gets closer... Will shouts out to hold it right there, catching them by surprise. Dave comes out from behind the brush with his gun drawn, orders them to throw down their guns. They comply. Dave is holding the bag of money. He says the stagecoach driver got excited and dropped it onto the ground. But all they wanted was the girl. Kogan doesn't believe a word of that. So Will has his rifle ready, aiming straight for Kogan. He says to Dave, let me kill him. But Dave says no. He instructs Kogan and the others to get back onto their horses, take the money, and go. 
He says to Kogan that he knows exactly what he is, hunting people down like animals. Now at this moment, there's a telling shot of the deputy and the other men. They're grinning. They're in agreement with Dave. It's clear they don't approve of Kogan's ways either. They're just following the law. So Kogan gets back onto his horse, and the men go. Billy's arm is now in a makeshift sling that Mavra's fashioned. So now their plan is to ride onto the next town. Kogan and his men head towards Casper Turnoff to meet up with the stagecoach. They cut it off as it approaches. Kogan tosses the money back to them, but then he orders the two men to throw down their guns. The driver tosses his pistol to Kogan, and the man with the shotgun tosses his gun to the deputy. Kogan has that blood hunger that Will was talking about before. He wants to head right back to the fore and hunt them down. But when the deputy catches the shotgun, he points it straight at Kogan, says, where are you going? The deputy knows it was never the four's intention to steal that money. He says Kogan pushed them until they had no choice but to run. Kogan says to the deputy, you could be legally shot for what you're doing. The deputy says, that's a word you like, isn't it? Legally. He tells Kogan to give back the gun and take off the gun belt. Kogan starts to comply, but then fires the gun straight into the deputy's chest, saying he had no choice but to do it, and he tells the other men to take the deputy home. The last thing the deputy says to Kogan, when you catch up with them, I hope they kill you. The next scene takes place later that evening. Our four heroes have set up camp by the stream. Dave can tell that Mavra has known Kogan for a long time, so he asks her about it. She avoids the question, and she says, you've known him too, maybe with a different face, maybe with a different name, but he didn't scare you, and he couldn't change you. And I caught that. That was the second time she mentioned change. The first time was when Doucette was helping her put on her apron. But rather than explore this, the movie went, I thought, in kind of an awkwardly timed way. Dave says to her, what are you dodging the question for? Mavra says, why did you have to ask it? Then he pulls her in and kisses her. To me, it seemed out of place. Why did the director choose to put a kiss in there? And at that moment, I felt like it was only because there had been no romance throughout the movie. And it was as if they just needed a spot to throw it in. But it's almost as if the characters agree that it was ill-timed. They back away from each other. Dave says, there's no point since they'll be splitting up soon anyway. Mavra says, why? Because I wouldn't answer your question. But the moment is cut short because that's when Kogan catches back up with them. I don't want to give away the events that follow. I want you to check this out for yourself and see how you feel about this movie as a whole. But I will tell you this, not everybody makes it out alive. It takes a pretty tragic turn, as a matter of fact. Those who remain head back to town as the townspeople gather round. We find out exactly how Mavra knows Kogan. Apparently, he had come to her town and established martial law. There were those who tried to fight him, but they couldn't. And then it's revealed that Kogan used Mavra as an example, and had his soldiers degrade her. So you can use your imagination as to what that means. But I would say 
that justice is served in the end, although it is very much a bittersweet victory. So as much as I have trouble getting into Westerns, the broken land, I have to say, held my attention. It held my attention because there was always something happening. It wasn't like a lot of Westerns where there's scenes upon scenes of cowboys riding off into the distance. Also, everything happens in linear time, which I personally think made the story a little more engaging. Plus, the length is only about an hour and 10 minutes, which some might consider a short film length. In other words, it doesn't drag at any point. So while you'll probably never hear me say that Westerns are my new favorite genre or other silly things like that, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised by The Broken Land. So now that I've given it a chance, now it's your turn to do the same. The best way to find The Broken Land is on YouTube. It's broken up into five pieces by a user named Hamza Ahmad. So thank you, Hamza Ahmad, whoever you are. You really saved my ass when I was looking for where to find this movie. The full movie is also up on YouTube, but I don't recommend watching that version as the quality is not as good and it seemed to me that it was sped up slightly to keep it under an hour. There is a listing for it on Amazon Prime Video, but at last check, it says that that title is unavailable. But if you can get to YouTube, watch it for yourself. Even if Westerns aren't your thing, if I can do it, you can do it. We are moving right along in Jack Nicholson's early career. And next week, we're on to 1963, where Jack has two acting credits and his first screenwriting credit. I'll be covering The Raven, The Terror, and Thunder Island. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a nice rating and help share this podcast with the world. Follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. And make sure to visit clovercrestmedia.com, where you can find a ton of other great original podcasts. Be on the lookout also for my blog, which will come out the day after this episode is released. And you can do that by following Clovercrest Media Group on Medium. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. Jack.